We just started a mini-series called On Earth as It Is in Heaven, where we're looking at the kingdom parables Jesus taught his first disciples. And he taught them for the purpose of them and us, living more into the reality of this kingdom in our everyday lives. Today's parable, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or tares, used interchangeably, I want to introduce with a story. Years ago, when I was in high school, I had a friend who came to youth group with me. Um, She had church background, but she would not have identified herself as a follower of Jesus. Her dad was an alcoholic, somewhat abusive to her mother. My friend had a skin disease that impacted her physically, which, let's face it, in middle and high school is going to impact you socially and therefore emotionally. During one week when we were both serving at a Christian camp, she seemed to have a real desire to trust Jesus with her life. But in the weeks that followed, it became clear through her attitude and actions that was not the case. When I asked her about it, I'll never forget her response. She said, I tried, God, Amy. It didn't work. I still have this disease. My dad's still an alcoholic and difficult to live with. I thought my life would magically get better with God, and it didn't, so I'm done trying. Now, that may be extreme, but I still think it can represent what many of us at times feel or wonder. I think it's actually quite common for people to assume, either from bad Bible teaching or unrealistic expectations that if we are Christians, our lives should be all good. Our lives should be full of joy and victory over sin and struggles, and the challenges in this life will continue to diminish. And there's some truth to that. There is great joy in following Jesus, as we're going to see in two weeks. And we do become more whole and holy as we allow God to shape our character. But if we overemphasize those aspects, we may be in danger of having an unrealistic view of Christianity. If we come to faith with an expectation that everything will work out eventually, what happens when it doesn't? When we face unexplained illness or disease or lose a job or are seriously mistreated or wronged, Do we just give up on God entirely then? When Jesus came to earth, announcing God's good news was finally here, his kingdom of love and justice and righteousness, there was a similar dynamic at work. If God's chosen one is finally here to set this world right, then why aren't all the dominoes falling into blind? Why isn't everything all tidied up and clean? Or to use an agrarian image, if God is sowing good seed, why then are there weeds interspersed with them? As we saw last week, this was a live issue for people in the first century. If God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven, why doesn't more of this life resemble his kingdom? And as we saw last week, Jesus' answer to that was the kingdom starts small like a mustard seed or a small batch of leaven, but over time it will grow and have a powerful impact. Small agent, potent effect. 
And that is to serve as a strong encouragement to us as we seek to live more of this kingdom to come on this earth. We take our little tiny mustard seed and yeast and faithfully offer it to him and watch him magnify or leaven it. Similarly, the parable Jesus tells today about God's kingdom gives us another take on why we don't see more evidence of the kingdom at work. Why along with the good, there is also bad. And again, (laughs) for those of you who have been snapping photos of coarse mustard, I love it. I want to ruin you. I want you every time you see a weed to remember Jesus' words here and how that gives us both hope for now and for the future. Now, this is one of the few parables in the Bible that Jesus provides an elaborate explanation for. So elaborate, in fact, I'm not going to read the interpretation initially, though we're going to come back to it later, but you can skim ahead in your Bibles to Matthew 13, 36 to 42, if you want. I want us first to look at the parable in its original context, because there's a lot we miss if we don't do that. And then we'll look at Jesus' overall point with the parable, and along the way, I think we'll discover what that means for us today. So for now, I'm going to read the parable itself from Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Hear now the word of the Lord from the Lord himself. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it in my barn. Now, this isn't the case for us today, but the people listening to Jesus tell this parable in the first century were largely an agrarian society. So this story about a field and a man sowing seed in it are pretty familiar. This would be if I said to you, a guy walks into a bar, or if I said, so I was listening to this podcast while I was running. Okay, it's really familiar. So familiar, in fact, that Jesus doesn't feel the need to explain various aspects of the story. But those first listeners would have understood what he meant. That isn't the case for us, so we've got to connect some dots. For starters, most of the rural land in the Roman Empire, including the region around Galilee where Jesus is teaching, was owned by wealthy landowners who would enlist servants to work the land for them. Many of the people listening to Jesus tell this story were just that. They could easily identify with these servants. 
As for the typical Palestinian diet, bread was a staple. So you can appreciate just how crucial the crop of wheat would be. But what's most pertinent for this story is the listener's familiarity with the two kinds of seeds planted here, the wheat and the weeds. The wheat sown by the farmer, presumably through his servants, and the weeds sown by the enemy of the man sowing. Most scholars today believe the weeds described here refer to a very particular kind of weed, the Darnell weed. If you want, you actually can't see its genus species there, if you want the technical term. This weed, also translated tares in some versions, was particularly troublesome for a few reasons. First, and perhaps most importantly, it very closely resembled wheat. In fact, it was often referred to Jewish people as, and I'm going to give the G-rated version here, corrupt wheat. That's because while it was in its early stages, you couldn't distinguish wheat and, or you couldn't distinguish weed or darnel from wheat. They started out really similar in height and color. It was only after the crops grew and the ear appeared that you could identify the differences, which is why in verse 26, it's only when the crops start to grow that the servants even begin to notice something is off. Now, eventually, you could identify the two stalks because the wheat would grow taller. <laughs> and after cutting them, uh, you could pick out the darnel by its gray-colored seed. But early on in their growth, the two looked nearly identical. Second, darnel was destructive. It carried a poisonous fungus on it. It could cause dizziness or sickness, having similar effects as a narcotic. So if you were to cut down both crops together and harvest them at the same time, the fungus on the weeds would ruin the wheat. The resulting flour would be spoiled. There goes your grain. Third, the darnel weed had a tendency, it just gets better, to root itself more firmly than the wheat seeds in the ground. And so this made it particularly challenging to pull up the weeds, even if you did identify it. Because often pulling out the weeds meant pulling out the wheat, so most farmers in the first century would not have even attempted this if there were a lot of weeds present. So this is any farmer's nightmare. You have a very difficult to identify, destructive weed that's really good at entangling itself with healthy seed that is a staple in your diet. What's a farmer to do? Now, what's interesting about this story is the way Jesus tells it with the surprise in the servant's voice, as well as the directive of the master not to weed, indicates to us this is not a story depicting how all crops will eventually get a small amount of weeds. This is worse. The decision to defer weeding until later when the wheat can be salvaged is because there's too many of them. They're too entangled. And this fits with Jesus' description of the problem's cause. This is sabotage. This is a hostile force deliberately sneaks in while everyone was sleeping and intentionally scatters the seed amidst the good seed. The enemy knows what a threat Darnell's seed is. He intends to destroy this crop. And what's interesting is 
While not an everyday occurrence, we do have documentation of ancient farmers fighting. Some things never change. And apparently, sabotaging a neighbor's crop was common enough that there were Roman laws against it, outlining the punishments for such an act. This is like Coke breaking into a Pepsi plant, adding cyanide to the entire product. This is severe and targeted. And this crisis actually prompts two questions from the servants in the story that I think reflect our questions as well. Listen to the exchange between the farmer and the servants in verse 27 after they notice the problem. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Actually, they know he did because most likely they did it for him. Their real question, the question behind the question, is what comes next. Where then did these weeds come from? How can the presence of this bad seed be permitted among the good seed? In other words, how did this happen? It's the question asked by human beings since the beginning of time. Dale Bruner, New Testament scholar, summarizes the question like this. If God is a God of love, why is there so much? Why is there any evil in the world? And it's a question we ask at times. If you really love me, God, why isn't my life turning out the way I thought it would? That's the first question they ask. Verse 28. An enemy did this. A mere four words. And we want more information, more details. Where did he come from? How did he get in the field in the first place? The details are frustratingly as sparse as Genesis 2 that introduces the serpent into the narrative. But this response, albeit brief, does give us what is perhaps a most important piece of information. God is not the author of evil. God did not sow this destructive seed. Jesus reiterates this later in verse 37 when he's with his disciples explaining this parable. The one who sowed is the, the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. God is innocent of this destruction. And that is a very important piece of information for those struggling to respond in faith. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. The second question they ask is, what do we do about it? Verse 28, the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull him up? Up until now, all the verbs in this story have been in the past tense. Here, continuing through Jesus' reply in the next verse, they are all in the present tense, emphasizing the main point of this parable. No. He said, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Let them both grow together. And here is the point of the parable. Remember, Jesus tells this parable to describe what the kingdom is like. 
His point is that the presence of God's kingdom does not mean the absence of evil. Not yet, anyway. We expect, and certainly those in the first century expected, that when Messiah would come, he would inaugurate his good rule on this earth, and that would mean things would get better. He's a God of justice, right? So you'd think he'd be intolerant of injustice. If he's building his kingdom and his people, you'd think he'd want a more pure community, one in which wheat is clearly on one side and wheats are clearly on the other. If he's all about justice and righteousness and mercy, let's see it. Show me evidence of it. You can't blame those listening for being confused. How can this work of Jesus and this small band of followers really be God's kingdom when there is still so much wrong in the world? I.e., the Romans are still in power. There's still a lot of injustice that sure seems to go unchecked, and some people are just downright hostile. I thought the kingdom was going to take care of all that. Jesus is once again correcting our unrealistic expectations of his rule. It is not as if his presence means all evil is eradicated. In fact, his reply in verse 30 and then his explanation of the parable in verses 36 to 43, he's emphasizing that evil still exists despite the kingdom and it won't be dealt with until he comes again to exercise final judgment. So let me try and summarize it like this with three points. One, evil exists. Two, God will eventually take care of it. Three, the part we don't like, just not yet. Let me take each one of those a point at a time. First, evil exists. So, okay, before you tune me out as that being really depressing, strangely, I think this is comforting because it's validating of our experience. We're not crazy. Life is hard. There is resistance and opposition. Yes, some hardship and suffering in the world, both personally and more universally speaking, comes from our own poor decisions. Or simply living the effects of a fallen world. True enough. But some is also sown by the one who is against God. When Jesus offers an explanation for this parable later in verses 36 to 43, he defines the enemy, as I've said in verse 39, as the devil. He also emphasizes that this enemy is opposed to him specifically. In verse 25, that his enemy is emphatic in Greek. City Church, the hard truth is that alongside the power of God and his good kingdom, he has in store for all. There is another power at work in the world, and he is opposed to the will of God. If God in Jesus is seeking to bring more and more of his good kingdom at work in the world, the evil one is working overtime to resist that, to oppose that. His job description, Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, is to steal, to kill, to destroy, and he is very good at his job. And while it is not a pleasant thought, I actually think it may bring some sense of comfort at times. This world is ripe with troubles. Devin just prayed for one at the start of this service. And yes, sometimes, as I've said, 
And it is true. The mess we find ourselves is a result of our own poor choices. Sometimes we didn't do anything wrong and we're just experiencing the effects of a fallen world. But the Bible also gives us this insight that sometimes it just may be the work of the enemy who can be hard to detect, who intentionally causes resistance or opposition to the work God is doing. As I've been reflecting this week, I think this is important because I think it's a good corrective for many of us, and I'm speaking in broad Christian circles, who may at times, in an effort to uphold God's sovereignty, make God the blame for anything bad. Sometimes something bad happens and we're very quick to say, God must be trying to teach me something. This must be his way of making me trust him more. Please hear me. Of course, God is sovereign over all. Nothing happens without his knowledge or permission. He is the ruler of heaven and earth, thanks be to God. But that doesn't mean he is the author of evil. The fact that he can use hard things in our lives speaks more about his ability to redeem than his initial causation in the first place. Listen to how New Testament scholar Klein Snodgrass puts it in his book on Jesus' parables. God is not the only one at work, and not all actions in this world can be attributed to God. God often gets blamed for every event that occurs, but his is not the cause of every event. Every evil happens that can only be identified as the work of an enemy. Accordingly, this parable should slow down an overemphasis on the sovereignty of God or a naivety that attributes every event to God's manipulation. Meaning, maybe God didn't start the fire that killed hundreds of people in Maui or incite the sexual offender to abuse his victim. It's true Preserving God's sovereignty, which we must do, he still permitted it to occur, so it doesn't let him off the hook entirely, but it does help a bit with trusting that God is good and loving as well as sovereign. I realize this is a very difficult nuance, but Jesus seems clear about attributing evil to the evil one. So too should we, it seems. The point Jesus was making to that first audience and to us is that God's good kingdom, God coming in Jesus, does not mean evil is eradicated immediately. The presence of God's kingdom does not mean the absence of evil. Not yet, anyway. That doesn't mean we're passive or tolerant about it. Other passages in the Bible gives us some ways of coping with this reality. This one doesn't as much. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. But it can't be our goal to eliminate evil completely. That's not our job. And it's not going to happen until Jesus returns. That's for him to do. I think... This is one of the ways in which the Christian worldview is the most compelling worldview there is. And as I interact with people who would not yet identify as Christians, this is part of what wins them. 
It speaks to the reality of evil and suffering. It does not make light of it. But the great promise and hope underlying that is that evil will be done away with by a good and loving God who's opposed to evil and will eventually put an end to it forever. It's unfortunate that many contemporary churches don't ever want to mention the devil because we're too rational for that. We don't want to end up like the other side of the extreme of those spirit-filled crazy people. But perhaps... By ignoring this reality, we make ourselves more vulnerable to his work than if we just look at it plainly. He is a foe, but by Jesus' death and resurrection, thanks be to God, he is a defeated foe. So says Dale Bruner, a rationally denied devil rather than a Christ-conquered devil is a dangerous reality. The Christian devil is a devil in chains, but a denied devil is an unchained fury. We don't need to give him center stage, but we shouldn't deny his existence either. And honestly, this is why if you do nothing else for City Church during this transition of leadership, I am asking you to pray. It'd be nice if we'd all do more, <laughs> show up, bring our kids and students, give, serve, but honestly, if you're only going to do one thing, I hope you'll commit to praying regularly for God's work to be done unhindered in our midst. We need it. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean we're to be obsessive about seeing the devil behind every technology malfunction or whatever. We're not going to give him more airtime than Jesus does. He makes an appearance, but he's not center stage because he is an overcome enemy. He is a conquered enemy. That's why he's unhinged and flailing. Notice in this story, the enemy has no ability to uproot the good seeds the Son of Man has planted. He can only scatter bad seed among the good. So Jesus' defiant cry in John 10, 29, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And this enemy, as well as his followers, according to Jesus' interpretation of the parable in verses 40 to 43, will meet their end. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds pretty final. That sounds pretty definitive. This is the second point of the parable. Yes, evil exists, but God will eventually take care of all evil. He will eliminate it entirely. Now, the theme of judgment is not a comfortable or popular one, and frankly, it's often misused in teaching settings. Either churches neglect it entirely or they tend to use it as a scare tactic for evangelism, which is never how Jesus references this topic. In fact, it's worth noting that even in teaching this parable, Jesus has two different emphases, depending on the audience. Notice how when he's with the crowds, meaning people curious and open to considering his way, he focuses primarily on prohibiting division between wheat and weeds, verse 24 to 30. 
But when he's with the disciples alone and they ask him to explain what it means in verses 36 to 43, his focus is more on describing the division between the wheat and weeds. Meaning, when he's just talking with everyone, his focus is on the phrase, let them both grow together. I'll deal with it later. But when he's with his followers, he gives them a more detailed picture of what dealing with it later means. If you compare these passages side by side sometime this week, you'll see the interpretation of the parable Jesus gives in 36 to 43 goes beyond the parable message itself when it comes to judgment. But even what Jesus says about judgment in verses 36 to 43, we must exercise caution in interpreting that language. Because the intent of metaphorical and apocalyptic language in Scripture is often very different than what, broadly speaking, contemporary Christianity assumes. What is absolutely clear from this passage is that there is judgment in the final day when Jesus returns. Why else would there be a need for salvation? But just as clear is that Jesus is the one exercising it, not us. It is not our job. He is perfectly capable of judging justly, and I am very comfortable leaving that with him. The fact that God will exercise justice one day fully when Jesus returns is a good thing. We want justice to be done. If it isn't, it means God is soft on sin and wrongdoing that hurts human beings whom he has created and loves. Those of us who have put our trust in him long for that day and can look forward to it. But what this parable teaches is that it is not that day yet. And that's the third point this parable makes. Evil exists. God will deal with it one day. Unfortunately, just not yet. His kingdom has begun with Jesus' first coming, but it is not fully ushered in until Jesus' second coming. And in the meantime, the wheat and the stinking weeds coexist. We have an enemy, albeit a defeated one. We work to resist the opposition and the enemy, but we shouldn't expect a purified wheat field devoid of weeds. That is not a realistic expectation, Jesus says, not until it's time. So what does all this mean for us? Frankly, it's a reality I do not like very much at all. I would much rather have a pure, unadulterated wheat field, please. I prefer no weeds in the good crop. My vote is either or, not both and. But rather than wasting precious energy on being shocked that they are here to begin with, we can instead be guided and comforted by Jesus' patient reply. Let both the wheat and the weeds grow for now. I'll deal with them at the right time. That can guide us in that we know what to expect. And it can comfort us in that we can entrust all vindication and judgment to him. It's messy now. It'll get sorted later. God will eventually do that. But for now, expect the mess. Now, to be clear, an acceptance of this reality does not mean we are to respond with passivity about wrongdoing. This passage doesn't address that question specifically, but other passages in the Bible do. 
Passages like a few chapters later in Matthew 18, which gives us a protocol for addressing wrongdoing in the church, confronting brothers or sisters who are sinning. Or Galatians 6.1, brothers or sisters, if anyone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Still other passages speak to the importance of standing up for those who are vulnerable, who have no power for themselves. But it does mean when we know God will ultimately judge justly, then we can be free of that responsibility. We can extend forgiveness rather than retribution because we know it will be addressed one day by one who judges justly. So Paul advises the church in Romans 12, 19, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. It is precisely because we believe in God's final reckoning day that we can suspend our interim reckonings. City Church, it may seem at times like God is not a very good farmer, like he's sleeping on the job or unaware of what's happening or inattentive to our needs, or even incompetent. But Jesus refutes that thinking by describing how God's permitting bad seeds to exist with good is not a sign of his neglect. God's coming kingdom does not eliminate difficulty, not yet anyway. It will all be dealt with eventually, just not on my timetable or yours. Until then, like it or not, it's both wheat and weeds. May we have patience to wait until he restores this world for good, and may we entrust ourselves to him in the meantime, for he will sort it out in the end. We can count on it. Let's pray. Our Father in the heavens, make your name holy. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth, in this church, in our lives, as it is in heaven. Give us today what we need and deliver us from that evil one. For yours, not his, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.